This is not the media. This is hell. And if it's Saturday morning and you are listening on WNUR, you are actually now for the second week in a row hearing the shows that we did during the previous five days, four or five days. So thank you to everybody at WNUR for finally getting that together. Thank you, Alex, for finally getting that together for the first time since the pandemic started. For the first time since we were told never to go near the studios again until the pandemic had gone away. We're finally back on WNUR, so if you're listening and it's Saturday morning, hi. Today, we are honoring the life of a person who last week's winner of the question from hell said might finally unite the left. A person whose show I had the pleasure of appearing on once in front of a live theater audience, whose work touched so many lives, and that person is the late, great podcaster, author, and activist Michael Brooks of The Michael Brooks Show. We'll also be getting caught up on what's happening in Brazil, and a lot is happening with the pandemic. And we'll do both with the return of editor and correspondent Brian Meir, who edited and contributed to the collection year of lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program, From the South. Brian is also co-hosting a new podcast called Coronavirus Update, Dateline Sao Paulo. Brian has been contributing to This Is Hell for several years, and we have dozens and dozens of our conversations with Brian available online at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on Mir, M-I-E-R, including our most recent from back in mid-April when we discussed what coronavirus was like at the time in Brazil during a series of interviews we were doing when we were talking to contributors, correspondents, past guests about what COVID-19 was like wherever they were. The kind of travelogue of pandemic tourism you'd expect from a show called This Is Hell. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur, and you can find Brazil Wire online at brazilwire.com and Telesur English at telesurenglish.net. Putting people before profits since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell you are listening to completely listener-supported radio, live stream, podcast, whatever this is right now. If you want to help us out with our horrible business model, go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on support, where you can find all the ways in which you can support This Is Hell. There's plenty of ways to do just that, including subscribing to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which we stream live every Friday morning at 10 Chicago time, with a new monologue from me and a classic interview that is unavailable anywhere else online. Soon, we hope all of our entire archive of shows will be online, but in order to do that, We have to pay programmers, which is one of the many reasons we want to thank you for your support. Last week, we got an email from a listener asking us to have historian Mark Levine on the show, which reminded me that Mark had been on way back in 2006 to talk about the failed foreign policy of the Bush administration, which turned out to be a lot like the failed foreign policy of the Obama administration and the current Trump administration. Apparently, Mark has a new article out at Al Jazeera, From Neoliberalism to Necrocapitalism in 20 Years. And as the interview we shared on Patreon was from 14 years ago, enjoy yet another trip down memory lane by hearing our Patreon interview with Mark Levine on the forever war Bush started and Obama and Trump continued by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also on last Friday's Patreon podcast, I also admitted that my 
Paranoia is driven by an overinflated sense of significance, self-significance, a massive ego that could really benefit from being arrested by federal agents as it would finally legitimize everything we've ever done here on This Is Hell. But you can only hear that and almost 250 other Patreon podcasts we've done so far by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host Chuck Mertz. Producing, as always, is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Still awaiting this order of pants I <laughs> placed. It is going to be a big. It's going to be a big moment in my life. My wife had to announce to my kid, "Dad is getting new pants." <laughs> so, uh, do you ever have anything stolen from your house when it's being delivered? Uh, no, I don't think so. Is that? Oh yeah, you're still missing. Uh, <laughs> wait, so the thieves had to choose between a bag of cat litter, <laughs> a an embroidered nightgown, a embroidered and bathrobe, sheet music. and sheet music of Scott Joplin. Uh, yeah, I don't know what's going on with that. Uh, but uh, so, and you get which your... of those would you have personally <laughs> stolen from your lobby? <laughs> Probably the. Jeez, uh, eh, that bathrobe looked a little tacky. It didn't go with my eyes. Uh, so, are you having any trouble with mail delivery though? Oh, you mean because the post office is going to collapse? Yeah. Uh, no. Not yet. It's just us, huh? It's, we've got, we've gone another week without an email. It's pretty fantastic. Things get ready for a few more weeks without <laughs> mail coming up. <laughs> so, Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what is the coronavirus cure they, all caps, don't want you to know about? What is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? <laughs> What's the cure they don't want you to know about? You to know about. Question from Mel from our, with our, the, I'm sorry, the listener with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can see the mask right now. Even order your own when you go to thisishell.com and click on support to get to our swag page. Again, this week's question, Mel, is what is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? What is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? You can leave your answer to this week's question, Mel, at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner as we do every week after Jeff Dorchin delivers his moment of truth. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Trigger warning. I'm about to talk about sports, so if you hate sports, fair warning. On the other hand, if you are anti-sports, This sports monologue may be for you. Another trigger warning, if you are a sports fan, I'm about to talk about sports in a very unflattering way, so prepare yourself and know I'm not one of those anti-sports people who I warned earlier. And final trigger warning, sports talk radio is going to come up during this bit, and as sports talk radio 99% of the time sucks, this is really a trigger warning for everybody who's listening right now. Sports rarely comes up as a topic on our show because while sports are hellish, it's something that far too much airtime and energy is spent promoting considering the frivolous nature of sports. And yes, I do know what frivolous literally means. It means having no serious purpose or value, and professional sports has neither. In fact, sports has come up only one other time at the top of the show this year. And that was back on June 23rd when I said that sports would not be happening this year due to the coronavirus, and I added good riddance. Sports are a time suck that distracts us from reality, as the wise philosopher Charles Barkley recently advised. 
Without sports, all we have is reality to deal with. And let's be honest, reality sucks. And Sir Charles is correct. Reality sucks. But maybe if we weren't distracted by sports, maybe we could do something about reality sucking. And it looked like that was happening with the protests against racialized police violence following the murder of George Floyd at the hands of cops. Yes, people were talking about the possibility of sports returning after being canceled due to the virus, but that really seemed to go into hyperdrive immediately following George Floyd's death and the uprising against police violence. Coincidence or conspiracy? Me? I'm going with business as usual, which conspires to devalue life as much as it possibly can. Sports have started back up in a couple of different ways. The National Women's Soccer League completed their season and declared a champion by playing in what's being called a bubble, that is, within a space that has limited contact with anyone who is not a competitor or other essential staff members for the team. This limits contact and should decrease the likelihood anyone will get COVID-19 or spread the disease to others. Major League Soccer is doing the same, as is the National Hockey League and National Basketball Association. But not Major League Baseball. Well, like the bubble, MLB fan MLB does not allow fans in the stands and limits those in team facilities. They are allowing games to be played in each team's home stadium. Problem is, some of those teams and some of those stadiums are in hot spots of the virus where outbreaks are surging right now as the season started this past weekend. This, of course, puts the players at far more risk than in a bubble, and, of course, baseball players and staff members immediately started coming down with the Rona. Four players and staff of the Miami Marlins tested positive for the virus, and their manager allowed them to decide if they wanted to play or not, which is completely against MLB rules during the pandemic. The players decided to play, and after the game was over, it was determined not four, but 14 Marlins had the virus, which did not sit well with their opponent over the weekend, the Philadelphia Phillies, or the people who work where the games were played at the Philly Stadium, which has a corporate name, but as that corporation is not paying me to say it, screw them. The Baltimore Orioles, who were supposed to go to Miami and play the, Mi the Marlins in the hot spot, immediately canceled their upcoming games with the Marlins. The New York Yankees, who were supposed to play the Phillies next in Philadelphia Stadium, canceled their games, and with players from other teams testing positive, many are now considering the slight chance that the season will have to be stopped again. The mo this morning, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said of the rash of infections amongst the Miami Marlins baseball team and the impact this may have on the 2020 baseball season, this could put it in danger. What baseball games that have been played have done and so in front of what games have been played so far have been done so in front of empty seats, no fans, with some stadiums and teams putting eerie cardboard cutouts of fans with faces often smiling, frozen in time while simulated crowd noises played through sound systems in an attempt to give the players and the viewing audience at home a, a sense of the game still being the same despite a global pandemic. It also, unfortunately, drowns out, the simulated sound drowns out all of the banter between all of the players, something that could actually make watching these games enjoyable, finally hearing the personal interactions of the competitors. But I don't think any of the sports wants you to hear what actually happens on the field of play. Also carrying with this is the sports doesn't need fans. That's the implication that it just doesn't need fans. Baseball teams saying ticket and stadium sales make up around 30% of revenue they apparently can do without. 
It's not the same for football, which depends upon tickets and vending for 50% half of their revenue. That said, television rights and sponsorships are where the real money is at, and you don't need fans and seats to make that money. Sports also doesn't seem to care about the players either, as they're rushing them out to reopen their leagues too soon, putting them all at risk, as well as their families and friends. The Marlins lost several players to coronavirus? Well then, get somebody else out there in Marlins uniforms and start playing. We got TV rights to cash in on and corporate sponsorships to brandish, and us billionaires need money. It should come as no surprise that billionaires and near-billionaires near who own sports teams don't care much about the players they employ, their staff, or the fans who loyally support their corporation. I mean team. These are billionaires and near-billionaires who cry poor whenever any negotiations over salaries are taking place, despite their team value constantly increasing into billions more dollars that pad the already extremely wealthiest riches. And they do the same with all of their employees and all their businesses. We are told we need sports back, that without them we do not have a feeling of normal. But during crises of global health and state violence, is this a time to be acting like everything's normal? Oddly, without sports, the scourge that is sports talk radio has marched on. Without sports, sports talkers have had to resort to other discussions like shared responsibility in dealing with the pandemic, racism faced by athletes in all sports, inequality in the exploitation of college athletes, police violence against people of color. And even some players have said they will not return to play their sports because they are too busy working on those issues that they simply don't have time, that these issues are far more important. Sports talk radio, in some cases, actually got better. Sure, some were hiding their heads in the sand and instead still taking it, talking as if all sports would return <clears throat> and this regular season would be just as regular as past regular seasons. But those whose ratings went up were the ones who didn't stay in their corporation and advertising shilling lane. Some sports talkers were forced without sports to consider the greater world outside of their bubble of sports, which keeps them safe from all of the outside world's challenges and controversies, all of the problems that their players grew up with, their families faced daily, the hurdles they needed to overcome just to survive to the age of being able to play college sports, let alone go pro. If sports talk radio can be lifted out of that haze that the drug of sports induces and finally recognizes the many sobering issues with their industry from exploitation of racial minorities and the poor to a lack of concern for their physical well-being while playing those sports to owners who make billions while minor leaguers somehow don't even earn a living wage with many having to board with local families for housing and the racism of some professional sports teams names the, to the sexism that occurs within the executive offices as well as locker rooms hey maybe look into the possibility of all those uniforms and the gear that fans wear with the advertising for their favorite team. Maybe we can find out if that is made in sweatshops by those making slave labor wages and miserable working conditions under a military junta somewhere. If sports talk radio announcers who are paid to be sports fans can finally see all the faults of their industry, then maybe we need sports to go away for a while so they can, those values can be reassessed, so their values and morals can be reconsidered. And maybe that's why owners want sports back and fast, so we don't rethink our relationship with sports. Sports that, like many other issues, went unchallenged for far too long until their fissures of inequality, greed, and violence were revealed by the pandemic. Like the pandemic is revealing about everything. Maybe that's why the billionaires want sports to reopen far too soon. They want us to stay distracted, not recognizing our team is owned by a right-wing reactionary who doesn't care that much of their... 
much <laughs> doesn't care that much for their players or fans, seemingly despising both or care for any of their employees in any of their businesses, and they use that money they have made, much of which is from the labor of people of color, to further conservative political causes, including stances against immigration and those that foster and contribute to institutional racism. What better way for the uber-wealthy to buy the loyalty of sports fans than owning their beloved team? While you're at it, exploit patriotism in order to sell the military-industrial complex to the fans, a complex which is decimating the quality of life of those in the stands, while protecting those of the rich high up in their luxury boxes. And more than anything, what the pandemic is revealing about sports is... This is hell coming up a few words about the passing of Michael Brooks and what's been happening in Brazil. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's the COVID-19 cure they don't want you to know about? What's the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can get right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. I had the privilege of being a guest on The Michael Brooks Show, but only once, and it was in front of a live theater audience, so it wasn't like his typical podcast. However, our guest today appeared on Michael's show frequently. He worked with Michael for a year to finally land an interview with former Brazilian President Lula and knew Michael far better than I. Here to share his feelings on Michael's passing and get us caught up on what's going on in Brazil under the pandemic, editor and correspondent Brian Meir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. Brian, how are you doing, sir? Well, I'm okay, all things considered, you know, pretty devastated about Michael passing last week. I was talking to him the day before. What were you guys you talking know? about? He was telling me he was getting into Baba Ram Das. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> no, I was just like, that seems kind of uncharacteristic. <laughs> he was like, Baba Ram Das is awesome. A friend of mine went to a really high-end expensive, you know, neighborhood, uh, suburban high school, Bloomfield Township High School. And his, I think, no, it was Brother Rice in Detroit, outside of Detroit, in Detroit. Uh, he went to Brother Rice and Ram Das was his graduation speaker. In high school, in high school. I wonder how many of those teachers were taking acid. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, let's start with talking about Michael, obviously a uh, good friend, podcaster, author, activist. Uh, who was a little under one month short of his 37th birthday, unexpectedly dies from a brain aneurysm. Some were speculating that the aneurysm may have been caught, brought on by coronavirus because apparently there's a link between the two and other potential neurological diseases. I just heard from somebody who was in their 40s who was in perfect physical shape. They had got COVID-19, and now they can't even they got heart problems from it, and they can't even go up one flight of stairs. Have you learned anything else about Michael's passing since last week? Have we learned anything to because this is just frightening, you know, an aneurysm can happen to anybody at any time. Well, um, you know, he lived in Brooklyn and uh, he had just taken a beach vacation the week before. And on the 14th, one of his final shows in which he talked really wonderfully about FBI involvement in the Lava Jato 
investigation and Lula's arrest and, and made a plea to end world hunger and things like that, he was saying he was feeling really bad. You know, and so yeah, the two things are linked. His sister is saying that it wasn't COVID. So I don't know. You know, I know he had problems with migraines. He was he was like incapacitated for 24 hours when he was down here in Brazil to interview Lula earlier this year because of a migraine. But I, there's no more information that I know of. Wow. So you know, I- and the, you know, these things do happen. I mean, yeah, it it could be related to COVID, but it could not be because people get aneurysms. You know, I've started taking aspirin every day since he died, just in case, because I think I had COVID earlier this year. You know. When I was in bed for a month for pneumonia, just out of the blue. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, and if I had, even if you have migraines, and I'm sure he went and saw a doctor about his migraines too, it doesn't necessarily, the aneurysm doesn't necessarily come up on an MRI when you're uh, trying to look for any kind of aneurysm. At least that's what I've been told by people who have had migraines who have actually uh, known people who have died from aneurysm. So, you know, even if you're taking care of yourself, geez, it's just such a drag, you know. How, how did you get to know Michael Brooks originally and know about the Michael Brooks show? Because you are the one who turned me on to Michael and his work. And then a few weeks later, we had a guest mention Michael's uh, show and their book. And I think that was back in 2018. And I had no idea he had such a huge following. So how did you find out about the show? Because you are how I found out about it. Well, you know, Chuck, I don't really normally pay any attention to U.S. media or podcast i don't have really like time people are always sending me youtube links and links and podcast links and i don't have time to listen to a lot of stuff but uh one of the founding editors of brazil wire became a huge michael brooks fan craig you know and he started talking to brooks on twitter like listen this is wrong what you're saying about brazil is wrong look at brazil wire and uh Brooks became like instant, an instant fan and promoter of Brazil Wire when all of the Anglo media, including the left media, was completely ignoring um, Brazil Wire and ignoring the fact that the U.S. was involved in this entire process of the coup and the, um, the political imprisonment of Lula and ignoring the fact that you could read about the U.S. partnership in this investigation on the Department of Justice's own website. Since 2016, everyone's been ignore, you know, was ignoring that, even in Jacobin and left publications that wrote about Brazil. And Brooks was like the one guy who was constantly citing Brazil while reading articles over the air, talking about these things and talking about how Lula was, a, without a doubt, a political prisoner. And um, he just like became in love with Lula kind of like he really Lula became like his favorite person in the world. And in this monologue, he gave about hunger on one of his last programs that we're going to print in Brazil wire today. He said for the first time that I've ever heard this, that he was on his family was on food stamps when he was growing up. He was from the working class. He passed some moments of anxiety. He said it was nothing compared to what a lot of people suffer in the world. But I think this is why he had this connection with Lula, because he'd actually like felt hunger when he was a kid. And, you know, Lula prioritized ending hunger as president and, you know, came very close to succeeding before the coup process undid all of this. You know, now hunger's back in Brazil. Homeless populations are going through the roof and it's going to be worse because of COVID. But I mean, that's why he was that explains in, you know, in a nutshell why he loved Lula so much. 
So let me just ask you a couple follow-up questions on that. First of all, you were saying that Craig from Brazil Wire had found Michael Brooks, had said that he wasn't reporting on Brazil correctly, and then got in touch with him, and then Michael started uh, reporting on all of the work, the great work that you and your colleagues do at Brazil Wire. Uh, so everybody's talking about cancel culture now. Brian, why not just why didn't why didn't Brazil Wire just cancel Michael Brooks for reporting on Brazil incorrectly? Why reach out to him to get him to report correctly when you can just cancel him? What does that say to you about Brazil Wire? Yeah, I don't know about this cancel culture thing. I see it's becoming a big deal. I feel like Tom Phillips from The Guardian tried to cancel me a few months ago and it didn't work because I work for Telesur. I work for a TV network that was founded by Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. So if someone wants to cancel me as a communist or a socialist or whatever, it's on my Twitter handle, you know, and it doesn't seem like it affected my, you know, my reach or anything like that when he tried to cancel me. But I no, I think that what uh, Craig realized was that this is a smart guy. He cares about Brazil and, you know, he's talking to the wrong people. So why not put him in touch with some better information. I don't think it was a thing where he was like, this guy has got bad intentions, which is what we feel about several journalists who've been, you know, who've, who've positioned themselves as specialists in Brazil over the last five or six years who have bad intentions. You know, I don't want to mention names, but Alex Quadros wrote an article in 2017 in the New Yorker calling Lula's impending imprisonment the most important arrest in Brazilian history. And at this time, all of the information about how it was a kangaroo court proceeding, how there was no material evidence and how the U.S. was involved was all public information. And so we know there's a, we identified some journalists as just having bad intentions. And Michael Brooks was not one of those, you know. And you know what? I don't agree with a lot of his positions. I used to argue with him about stuff all the time, you know, like I don't believe I don't agree with him on his position on China or Syria or a lot of stuff. But, that, you know, that's not my area of speciality, so I don't talk about that publicly. But the fact is he was someone who kind of like listened to people. He always tried to promote indie people who he thought were good, like you, Chuck, you know, and um, he was malleable, you know, and he was he was kind of like changing his opinion on some things. I saw his opinion on Venezuela, for example, evolve to the point where he was working to try and convince the Sanders campaign to uh, you know, take a more firm position against the sanctions and against the DNC's policy towards Venezuela, you know, like I saw, I saw him change on a lot of things, and that's why I think he was kind of like a special person in the, in the media, and and he was beloved by people with a wide range of opinions about things, I, you know, mostly people who called themselves leftists, but you know, like you saw, like the first newspaper that reported on his death was Fox News. New York Times and The Guardian never even reported on his death because they hated him. (laughs) We had uh, D. Hunter, author of Chav's Solidarity, on the show a couple years ago. He discussed Chav's, the working class British, and how one of the life experiences that can have the greatest impact on one's politics is if you have ever not known where and when you'll get your next meal, where if you don't know where your next meal is coming from. How do you think experiencing food insecurity can shape your worldview, and how do you think it shaped Michael's? Do you have you ever not known where your next meal is going to come from? Yeah, Chuck. Um, in 1992, my fiance got in a car accident in Brazil, and we took a. I blew all my money. I had to sell a guitar and stuff, and 
I wasn't in much touch with my family at this time. We took a bus for 55 hours with no air conditioning across Brazil, got to her parents' house. Her mother had just died. Her, her family was living in a shack. And at one point, we went four days without food. And, you know, at this point, at, eventually, this was before the Internet, you know, so down there. And so eventually, I got in touch with my parents and got a few hundred bucks wired to me. But that was, you know, pretty tough. And I, all, I was almost like a spectator there watching what their family had to go through all the time. And I was uh, impressed that every day the grandfather went out and just tried to borrow some stuff to make porridge for the baby at least so that the baby kept eating for the whole four days. But then after four days, uh, one of my brothers-in-law got painted a bicycle for someone and got a few bucks. And instead of buying food, he bought a bottle of cachaça. <laughs> and we all got super drunk on an empty stomach, you know, and it was crazy. I ended up vomiting bile. <laughs> and the next day we got food. But yeah, I think that's kind of like shaped my opinion. Because when I first moved to Brazil, I used to see people hunger, hungry all the time. You know, I used to see families living in cardboard boxes on the street with babies and stuff. It's really shocking. And that's one of the reasons why, unlike a lot of bourgeois journalists who've moved up, parachuted into Brazil for the World Cup and started badmouthing Lula and the PT over nonsense, I have a very strong affinity for Lula too, because I witnessed, I was here the whole time, I witnessed how the country changed when he eliminated hunger. You know, like people got people, everyone all of a sudden was going to school and stuff, and people from Families that used to be passing hunger were now like going to university. I think so. And it's all being dismantled now. So not all of it, though, is still a lot better off than it was during the hunger crisis in the 90s. But things are getting worse pretty quick right now with COVID. So uh, there's a meme going around social media, and it's a picture of Michael with a quote that is widely and commonly attributed to him, something he said on his show, and that is, be ruthless with systems, be kind with people. What does that mean to you? And more generally, what does that say to you again about Michael and his work? Well, I think it just shows that he was actually like a really nice guy. You know, like he really did believe in being kind to people. And I think this is one of the reasons that he, to me, he served as kind of like a bridge between democratic socialist DSA, Jacobin, Haymarket crowd and people who are farther left, you know, who are critical of that, those people, you know, Green Party or whatever. Uh, he managed to, um, he managed to treat everyone with respect. Like I saw the day he died, I saw Anna Kasparian just like crying on the air, talking about how she learned so much about politics from him. He was very patient and he always, he always tried to promote indie people and indie media and things like that. And he was, he was really like, if you see the outpouring of people saying nice things about him now, it's like a lot of people just saying like he was the first person who really helped promote my work. And that's how we feel besides you, Chuck, obviously, like I mentioned, in fact, in my little eulogy, which is going to be played on the radio tonight on the Michael Brooks show, I mentioned this is hell. I said, you know, besides this is hell and a few academic groups, nobody was paying attention to Brazil wire in the United States before Brooks. And the only yeah. reason I was paying attention to you is because you had an article in Lumpen Magazine that was in such small print, I couldn't read it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh, you had me on about a Lumpen article in 1999. Yeah. 
So, so you, I was, I mean, you know me from Lumpen, so that's a different thing. You told me you spent a year working with Michael to secure an interview that you two would eventually do with the former president of Brazil, Ignacio Lula da Silva. But prior to attempting that interview, I thought that you had tried to get an interview on your own with Lula in the past. But then you, you were telling me that it took you a year to get this interview with Lula. What happened during that whole process? Well, yeah, I, Chuck, I, I had tried, but then he got arrested so what me and Michael were trying to do was interview him in jail. Right. And so, um, first of all, I thought, okay, so there was, at first he was barred, you know, until the elections, he was illegally barred from communicating with anyone in the press. This is just another crime that was committed against him to help Bolsonaro win the elections. You know, a Supreme Court justice made this kind of ruling of exception. They were so afraid of Lula that they wouldn't let him talk to anyone in the media. Once that was opened up after the election, there was this huge line of mainstream media journalists trying to interview him in, in prison. So during this period, though, I was like, he's not going to, and he could open up for two publications at a time. So I was like, I need a partner for this. Brazil Wire is not big enough to interview Lula in prison, even though I had have a lot of connections to the Tea Party and stuff. I mean, you can't justify that. I mean, if whatever New York Times is waiting in line and CNN and all these other places. So, so I said, let I, me and Michael decided to partner up and I was like, well, people in Brazil and the PT have to know who you are. So why don't you interview Lula's former foreign affairs chancellor, Celso Namorin, his defense lawyer, Valesca Martins, you know, I'll bring you on my web TV show in Brazil so people can see you. And so we started working first of all, to get people to know who he was. And then we filed a, a request with the court in Curitiba with help from Lula's defense team to demand an interview with him. So this was this kind of like back and forth process that took, like I said, about a year. And then finally, he got out of jail. And we were like, OK, this is going to happen now. But then he wanted to spend a few weeks on vacation, obviously. And uh, then they said, OK, we're ready. Can, you be, can he be down here in a week? And it happened you know, last January. And it was like, his sister told me in an email that it, he, he considered it to be like the greatest moment of his career. You know, he, he loved Lula so much. And so after that interview, it was like he was just walking on clouds. You know, he didn't even take his suit off for the rest of the day. <laughs> we are speaking with editor and correspondent Brian Muir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. So there was an article at Telesur back on July 17th, headlined, The U.S. Increases Risk of War in South America, Lula warns. In it, Telesur quotes Lula tweeting, uh, I have been reading with concern the reports on the NDP new edition. Our governments have tried to make the defense policy and strategy instruments for peace, sovereignty, and autonomous development. It is alarming to realize that old theories about 
rivalries with neighboring countries are being revived and that our armed forces can be used for actions incompatible with constitutional principles related to the non-intervention and self-determination of peoples. The concern increases when we see the automatic alignment and submission that are depicted in a shameful video in which a Brazilian general is treated as if he were an employee of the U.S. Southern Command, which is responsible for possible armed actions against Latin American countries. Brazil urgently needs to regain its national sovereignty, and that should be the goal of the NDP new edition. Is Bolsonaro then, Brian, I mean, I know this is a yes or no answer, and I kind of know how you're going to answer this. Is Bolsonaro a Trump puppet? And is Brazil fine with their government being a puppet government of the United States? Is that what Bolsonaro supporters want, to be subjects of the U.S.? Chuck, I would, okay, first of all, the the answer obviously is yes. I mean, he is a Trump puppet. It's obvious. And, you know, not just Trump, though, but like U.S. State Department. Because the project that put him in power began during the Obama administration. I don't think the Democratic Party would have been happy with Bolsonaro. I think they wanted someone who was polite, who acted like he was woke, who, you know, who appointed uh, more women and and um, Afro-Brazilian minister, cabinet ministers and things like that, but who was equally fascist economically and on foreign policy. I think Bolsonaro probably embarrasses the Democrats a bit, but Trump loves him. You know, they're two peas in a pod, in a fascist pod. And uh, so, that, I mean, I think about 15% of Bolsonaro's supporters Oh, no, 15% of the Brazilian electorate is hardcore Bolsonaro supporter who believe all of this, who want Brazil to be a puppet of the United States because of this traditionally inferiority complex that permeates the Brazilian middle class, that they're inferior because they're racially mixed. You know, there was beaten into their heads during the military dictatorship. So I think there's 15%. Another 15% of the electorate is just like, well, they were sick of the PT. You know, they had fatigue from... PT. Uh, they're maybe not that politicized, but they thought it would be a good time to change things, to do something different. Many of them are evangelical Christians. So we see right now about 30% of the population supports Bolsonaro, which unfortunately is like the minimum amount really that you need to stay in power. Like the PT has um, put in some impeachment requests and things like that, but they re- even they realize that unless his popularity drops below 20%, an impeachment's not viable right now. So it looks like for now, at least, he's probably going to be in power for another, you know, till his term runs out, unless these criminal proceedings in The Hague push through. But I don't see how he would respect uh, being prosecuted in the criminal courts in The Hague because he's anti-UN, like Trump, he's anti-multilateralism. So I don't know what they would be able to do to him if he was, I see that, you know, they, they only seem to take people in the criminal court of The Hague who are already out of power and in little countries that aren't that powerful, you know, economically and things like that. But here's hoping. We'll get to, let's get to that ICC thing in just a second, but just out of curiosity, so Brian, do you think anything would change with the relationship between the United States and Jair Bolsonaro if we had the electric personality of Joe Biden as president? Yeah, uh, what I think Brooks called Biden sloppy Joe or something. <laughs> I, I don't... <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I think Biden would probably like kneel in solidarity against Bolsonaro or something, put on some fancy scarf. But to be serious, the project of the neoliberals right now, including the Brazilian comprador class of elites who can control some of the center-right or conservative media companies like Globo and, and Folio de São Paulo, is to take out Bolsonaro but leave his economic team intact so that all of the crappy things that they've been doing will continue since the coup, you know, privatizations, uh, destroying the retirement system, gutting the health system, uh, gutting environmental regulations and liberating all of these pesticides. Like in the last two or three months, Bolsonaro government's legalized over 100 new kinds of pesticides things like that, I think that would probably, the, the ideal for the DNC would be for the economic policies to continue and just get a more polite leader who's not like openly saying racist things and maybe not so openly suggesting to kill all of the indigenous people and things like that. But I can't see, I don't see any difference economically in DNC goals or even Brazil in relationship to its neighbors like Venezuela. I mean, you see Biden is trying to outright Trump on Venezuela right now. He's trying to act like Trump is too soft on Venezuela, which is absurd. You know, so, so do you think there would with uh, Biden in office? Do you think that this trajectory then of potential military intervention in Latin America will not subside whatsoever, that this is something that is just consistent from administration to administration. Yeah, and um, that, this is something that um, my, Mark Weisbrot said when I interviewed him a year ago or something, like, yeah, there isn't that much difference in Latin American policy between administrations. In fact, a lot of times the Republicans are less effective and less competent at throwing coups than the Democrats are, you know? But there isn't that much ideological difference. I mean, and you see that, if you look at the history of the New York Times, they have provided normalization and ideological support, coup after coup after coup, you know, in the last 50 or 60 years in Latin America. And then a couple months later, this hand-wringing liberal kind of, oh my God, what happened? As I wrote, I wrote about this in FAIR recently regarding Bolivia with Camila Escalante, you know? Like now the, the New York Times is saying, oh, well, it turns out the OIS report saying that there was fraud in the Bolivian elections was a sham. OK, but as it was happening, you were supporting it. So it's too late now. Newsweek on the uh, International Criminal Court case, Newsweek quotes Marcio Manzane, Regional Secretary of UNI America's Global Union. That's the group that brought the case to the International Criminal Court. They said in a statement that filing a case with the International Criminal Court is a drastic measure, but Brazilians face an extremely dire and dangerous situation created by Bolsonaro's deliberate decisions. And they talk about how he downplayed the uh, coronavirus, how he actually interfered with governor's ability to get PPE and necessary medical equipment to address the virus. Is, is this an effective drastic measure that can have an impact on the dire and dangerous situation facing Brazilians with the coronavirus? Or is this just something that Bolsonaro can ignore and actually win points from his constituents because he's showing the power to ignore the ICC? 
Well, uh, just to give you, I mean, doesn't that description sound exactly like Trump? Yes, I mean, yes. Bolsonaro is doing exactly what Trump did with coronavirus. It's carbon copies, copying the same talking points. It was created in a laboratory in China. Masks are, you know, anti-freedom. All of this stuff just comes right from the U.S. So I think the ICC doesn't think it has the power to go after Trump. So they're going after one of his minions. And, you know, I don't know. This would be unprecedented if the ICC were able to do something against Bolsonaro right now as a standing president. You know, I could see him jailed five years from now for, through this action. But in any event, I guess as a political move, it's important. It shows that there's more pressure against him. It's got to stress him out. You know, that's I guess that's a good thing. Although I, I see when you when you corner fascists, they get even more dangerous, I guess, judging by what Trump's doing right now. But, uh, you know, I think I'm not going to say I, I think it's wrong that they're doing this or something. I think it's a good you got to try and do everything you can to get him out of power right now for the sake of the world's environment for Brazil's indigenous population and for the population in general of Brazil. So at least they're trying to do something, you know. Part of the ICC case is that Bolsonaro is promoting the drug hydro, <laughs> hydroxychloroquine, uh, and that's the drug that Trump was boosting and boasting about its effectiveness, and Bolsonaro says that's what cured him from COVID-19. Has Bolsonaro proven Trump and his miracle drug of hydroxychloroquine uh, that they're all right, that it's the, it's the perfect cure for COVID. Has this now been proven by the president of Brazil? Yeah, you know, that, whatever. I'm so sick of arguing with people on Facebook about this kind of stuff. <laughs> I was you know, just going to ask like you, is this... An, the... That's an anecdote, right? That's it... an anecdote. Even if he is better, you would need to duplicate... First of all, he took another test and it didn't leave his system after he started taking chloroquine. It's, you know... One week later, he tested positive again, supposedly, because supposedly he tested positive in March. So he might have just made up this entire thing because he's a habitual liar. And we all know that. But, um, you know, like, so what? One, you know, most people, 99 percent of the people who get covid do get better regardless of what medicine they take. So the odds are that chloroquine had nothing to do with this. And, you know, Trump dumped two million doses of chloroquine on him after the FDA banned it. And that's when he said he caught coronavirus and chloroquine cured it. You know, after he'd, he'd all, Brazil already had an 18 year stock of chloroquine because he engaged some illegal contracting and had the military fabricate 1.2 million doses of it. None of the state or city health departments want it. And then Trump dumped another two million doses. So he probably thought he had to do something queen or to get the public health systems to use it. So I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if he even had coronavirus this time around. Remember the first time they said he had it, everyone who came in contact with him got sick, including the mayor of Miami. You know, so I don't, I'm not, this is like such a, he's such a, like a psyops fake news operator and everything. I don't know. I don't know if uh, he really even had it this time around. This past weekend, you had a report on uh, the program from the South on the Uber Eats and iFood motorcycle food delivery driver strike because of a lack of personnel, uh, personal protective equipment, among other demands, including COVID-19 health care. You explained how this was their second strike, but you mentioned at the top the potential for strikes when it comes to targeting 
logistics. And I want to talk about that as far as the being under the pandemic at this time. Why do you see logistics as a site of vulnerability for capital? Has the pandemic revealed fissures in capital that activists can exploit that were not obvious before? Well, you know, with the Toyotization of production that involves transporting all of these different things around in order to make a final whole, and with this kind of like new, I forgot what it's called, this new distribution strategy in which they are avoiding even using warehouses now, and they're just delivering everything perfectly timed. You know, we see that um, some of the soy production leaving the Amazon is doing this now. They're not even using grain silos anymore. They're setting up operations where they just bring it straight from the from the truck to the barge. You know, the, uh, this reliance on transport logistics um, in the current most popular production mode means that the weak points in the entire system are transport logistics. You know, and so if you can shut that down, you can paralyze an economy. Whereas like a factory going on strike might not be so effective because parts for the product are made in eight different countries. I mean, you'd have to coordinate it. And also because labor unions are, are getting weaker and weaker and also because of like robotization. You know, like I know that in Sao Paulo, in the industrial region of ABC, which is kind of like a gigantic 20 times larger version of Gary, Indiana of Sao Paulo, they used to uh, have 120,000 steel workers in the 80s, and now they have 16,000, but they're producing more steel because of robots. So I think, it, I think it's harder for like the traditional areas to go on strike, but the one opportunity left is, are these logistics. And that's why I think that the, and I think with the gig economy and everything, what's happening in Brazil with the delivery drivers is really important. And I think really interesting to look at and see how they can hook up with gig economy workers in other parts of the world. So let's get to some writing that you've done recently on Lava Jato. There have been uh, certain developments that have happened just recently. Um, you've been reporting on this case to us for years and years, and you can find our conversations with Brian dating back to 2015 at our website, thisishell.com, to know more about Lava Jato. And that's the scandal and scam that got Jair Bolsonaro to become president in the first place, which you describe in a July 17th article at Brazil, where a U.S. Department of Justice clarifies role in Lava Jato, also known as Operation Car Wash. You called how the U.S. manipulated the law lawfare. And I'm not sure if you know this or not, Brian, but there's a new blog on legal matters called Lawfare, and it's run by the Brookings Institution. So look at you influencing the naming of blogs at the Brookings Institution. That's really fantastic. So here's the news on Lava Jato, the fake scandal that the far right in the U.S. used to overthrow the democratically elected leadership of both President Lula, his predecessor Dilma, forced out of office on suspect charges with uh, determinations made by partisan judges who made questionable legal rulings in both cases, leading to the imprisonment of Lula during the last presidential race, just as he was holding a decisive lead in all the polls. You write that in August 2019, a group of 13 Democratic members of Congress demanded answers and supporting evidence to questions about the U.S. Department of Justice's role in the corrupt Lava Jato anti-corruption investigation. Just to be clear, as you were mentioning earlier, Operation Lava Jato started under the Obama administration, and these Democrats were not asking questions back then. So have Democrats realized the error of their ways, or do you think this is just anti-Trumpism that would evaporate if Joe Biden became president? 
uh, Chuck, the, um, those Democrats were asking questions back then. These are members of the Progressive Caucus, and the Progressive Caucus has been, you know, pretty has been much more of a friend to Brazil during this entire process than, for example, most left U.S. media organizations like The Nation or Jacobin or In These Times or these other organizations that just kind of ignored it. The, the AFL-CIO and a small group of Democratic lawmakers, you know, they they complained about the coup against Dilma Rousseff. You know, they, they, they've been issuing these kind of like um, complaints and sending letters to the Brazilian embassy and things like that for a couple of years now. What's interesting about this letter is that a lot of people who sign the letter are not people you would think of first when you think of like progressive lawmakers. I mean, the letter was drafted by Hank Johnson, you know, and like AOC didn't sign it. Ilan Omar signed it. Rokana signed it, you know, but but anyway, you know, they were William Barr was who's a notorious guy for like burying information about crimes committed by the Justice Department. I mean, he was an Iran Contra figure, right? He pardoned Casper Weinberger in the Bush administration. But he was supposed to answer by September 30th of last year. And they finally answered in the beginning of this month. And it was just like this general form letter, not a form letter, but it was just saying, look, we do all kinds of things all over the world. But if you want to read about our partnership with Lava Jato, you know, look at these press releases we've been publishing since 2016. And they mentioned like four press releases. And it's like, these are the press releases that all of the U.S. journalists have been ignoring the entire time in reporting on Lava Jato. So what the letter really does is establishes that the Department of Justice has admitted publicly its role in Lava Jato since 2016. You know, so like when Alex Quadros wrote his article in New Yorker about um, Lula's arrest being the most important arrest in Brazilian history, it was public information that, that the U.S. was involved in the process that he didn't mention, you know. So, but just to explain one more thing about that, when I wrote this article, right, what happened was Lula's lawyer got in touch with me and said, Brian, we've heard that William Barr has finally responded to this request made by the 13 members of Congress, but the, but it hasn't been publicized yet. Can you get us a copy of the letter? So I sent a WhatsApp to Michael Brooks and he had it for me within an hour. And that's like the la that was like a week before he died. That was like the last big favor he did for Brazil. And this had major repercussions in the Brazilian media. Like this Brazil Wire article was translated and published in seven or eight different places. You know, so that just shows what a friend he was to Brazil. You know, and how much he's going to be missed because I don't see an anyone up there really like filling in his shoes at all on this issue. So we know where we hope this is heading. So how much of a step do you think this is to revealing a coup in Brazil conducted with the tacit support, if not complete leadership, of the U.S. Department of Justice and not only under Trump, but the preceding Obama administration, too? Why would Democrats want to out a coup that was of their own, I guess you already touched on that, but but uh, do you think that this is going to lead to potential, maybe even hearings here in the United States for the role that the United States played in a coup? I would um, really like to see that happen. Unfortunately, it would involve going after the Southern 
um, District of New York DOJ Anti-Corruption Department, which has arrested Ghislaine Maxwell now and is going really hard after Trump using a lot of the same tactics. So I can't really see the Democrats leading this kind of process. You know, maybe, maybe someone could start a court case against the DOJ or a lawsuit or something like that. Some of the victims, some of the family members of people who've died because of Bolsonaro's policies or something. But I, I could see this process dragging out for years, but I sincerely hope and I'll do everything I can to make sure that justice is eventually fulfilled on this issue. You, uh, one last question for you, Brian, and I am going to ask you a question from hell this time. We are speaking with editor and correspondent Brian Muir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. You can hear our conversations with Brian about that book and the earlier volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress, at our website, thisishell.com. When you search on Brian's last name, Mir, M-I-E-R, you can follow Brian on Twitter, at Brian M. Telesur. One last question for you, and we actually have a question from hell for you. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You shared a quote on social media by the murdered feminist, assassinated feminist, human rights activist, politician Marielle Franco. Franco, who regularly spoke out against police violence, was assassinated shortly after attending a roundtable on police violence in the favelas. And that killing has been linked to the military police, as well as those with connections to the family of and directly to President Jair Bolsonaro. Franco is quoted saying, we don't want social rights only after the war on drug drugs ends or drug trafficking ends. As citizens of the city and citizens of the favela, we want them today. But isn't the biggest obstacle to social rights the war on drugs and drug trafficking? Aren't social rights absent because of crime and the policing necessary to curb that crime? Can we, Brian, have social rights as long as there is a war on drugs and as long as there are illegal drugs? Well, I think Marielle Franco was very locked into local politics, first of all. You know, she was a city councilwoman, an alderwoman. I think what she was saying there was like, this so-called war on drugs has been going on for like 35 years now. We've been waiting to get rights returned to us for 35 years. We want them now. We can't wait until you fix this problem. We need our rights now. And then she's talking about, you know, food security, education, housing, you know, a wide range of rights, not just the right, you know, not to be shot by the police, which she fought hard against, you know. She's very, in this current moment of Black Lives Matter and stuff, she would have been a really, really fundamental character. Brian, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Again, my condolences to the passing of your friend, Michael Brooks. Thank you so much for everything that you have done for our show. It really is always an honor and a privilege to speak with you. And, you know, I'll be bugging you in the next couple of months. Once again, always a pleasure to talk to you, Chuck. And I just want to say hi to everyone in Chicago. I miss Chicago. Well, hey, you know what's happening? One year from this Saturday, our 25th anniversary party. Start saving your pennies now, my friend, and get over here for our 25th anniversary party on July 31st, 2021. Yeah, I'll definitely, I was going to spend three months in Chicago this year because of COVID, so I'll definitely be there. All right, excellent. Don't bring any COVID with you. <laughs> no.
All right, take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what's the COVID-19 cure they don't want you to know about? What's the COVID-19 cure they don't want you to know about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question gets a This Is Hell face mask, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to uh, this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but just have your response in by the end of show Thursday when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorton in the moment of truth as we do most weeks. Alex, do you have listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? What is the COVID-19 cure they don't want you to know about? They don't want you to know about. Stephen S. says, wind, burn. I don't understand that one. Ronaldo M. says, pasta fajoule. Of course. (laughs) Well, I do understand that one. If Pete says your mom, I'm going to be so upset. Uh, Chris L. says, Ebola. (laughs) What is the uh, COVID-19 cure they don't want you to know about? Dan K says, dictatorship of the proletariat. Gerdes says, adrenochrome. Uh, Zach N says, chain-smoking veganism. Aaron B says, having Keith Richards blow cigarette smoke in your face. Paolo S says, eating the rich. What is the hang or what is the hangover cure? Jeez. Uh, what is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? Tom H says, kimchi and yogurt. Warren L says, garlic and vanilla. Uh, Garrett L says, being rich. Corey G says, the brown acid we weren't supposed to take. David Z says, sacrificing your firstborn son to naked Athena. Adam K says, the latest hangover cure. Nathaniel T says, bong hits for Jesus. A couple more. What is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? Andrew S says, common sense. Mike J says, timerosol? Thimerosol? Oh, yeah. That's like a dangerous drug. That, is that the one that caused flipper babies? That was thalamide, wasn't it? Oh, that's, thalidomide. What it was. that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, I'll have to look that up. Austin H says, a tarot card reading. Uh, Donald H says, not saying, but I can say it's the reason Epstein isn't dead and would have never killed himself. Uh, Benjamin C says, Pepsi clear. Aaron D says, micro doses. And finally, T-Zone T says, fresh air. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner of the This Is Hell Medical Face Mask Thursday after Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth you can see that mask right now at our website this is hell.com when you click on support alex who's on tomorrow's wednesday's live one hour stream beginning here at 10 in the morning just like today's show ashley dawson will be on for his fourth or fifth appearance on the show let's talk about his book people's power reclaiming the energy commons from or books Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after at around 2 p.m. Chicago time to hear more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex. Thanks to Brian Muir for being our guest. And our apologies to Stephen O for not thanking you yesterday, as Stephen suggested Monday's guest, Alexander Kolokotranis, who spoke with us about the idea of using participatory budgeting with the police. In fact, after the show, when I was trying to figure out who tipped us off to Alexander's writing at Current Affairs, I discovered that was not the first time we'd heard from Alexander. Way back in 2015, five years ago, as a listener, Alexander emailed us with a list of potential guests on participatory budgeting, and we read that email on air again way back in 2015. In fact, we'll be reading listener uh, feedback on tomorrow's show. So if you have any constructive or destructive criticism, guest or topic ideas, or have any comment you'd like to share with us, email us, DM us via Twitter, send us a message via Facebook, or you can snail mail us anything you want to. This is Hell, second floor, 2251 West Devon, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And whatever you send or however you send it, we will likely read what you have to say on air or through tubes or whatever you 
however you get this is hell. Staring into the abyss, so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>